We're jumping back in tonight to our study in 1 Kings and looking at the impact of leadership and spiritual life on national affairs. The impact of leadership and spiritual life on national affairs. We are up to chapter 14. And uh, we saw last time how, well, actually two times ago, how the kingdom split. The unified kingdom of Israel became two. Uh, Israel to the north, sometimes referred to as Ephraim uh, in Scripture, and then Judah in the south. So now we're in the period of the divided kingdom. And as we go through kings from here on out, we're going to be jumping back and forth. Uh, the writer will be telling us about the state of affairs in the northern kingdom of Israel and the leadership or lack of leadership they had. And then likewise, he'll be telling us about the same in the southern kingdom. Of course, at the very end of chapter 14 tonight, we'll see the prediction of uh, the, the prophecy of the complete end to the northern kingdom. The 12 tribes, I mean, excuse me, the 10 tribes making up the northern kingdom, the Assyrians, not the Syrians, but the Assyrians will come in and totally destroy them. But God, after 70-year exile, will preserve the two tribes of the southern kingdom because he promised to preserve the line of David because ultimately, who's he going to raise up through the tribe of Judah? Jesus, the Messiah. Okay? Uh, so things will not fare so well for the northern kingdom. And even the southern kingdom will be caught up in much of the same idolatry and rebellion as the northern kingdom. So tonight we're going to be talking in chapter 14 about what's going on in the northern kingdom. Remember Solomon's son, Rehoboam, became king after him. And what did the advisors and what did the people want Rehoboam to do? Slack up on taxes and not be so hard on the people. And he took counsel of the young men and the older men. The older men said, listen to them. The younger man said, you tell them that you know, your little finger is going to be more severe against them than your dad. So who did he go with? Which advice? The younger guy said, be hard on him. So when he came back and announced that to the people, Jeroboam led the ten tribes to split. Hence the, the kingdom divided. Then what ignorant thing did Jeroboam do? The most, I mean, it's hard to believe that somebody can be so dumb. What did Jeroboam do? Well, that was Rehoboam. What did Jeroboam do? When he carried the, the ten northern tribes away, he set up two altars in the northern kingdom, one in the southern portion of the northern kingdom, closest to Jerusalem, one in the upper part of the northern kingdom, up at Dan, close to the border. And there, those two altars... What did he set up there to worship? Golden calves. Golden calves of all things. Israel kind of had an issue with that. Yeah, sure did. I mean, you've you got to ask, did they not learn anything yeah. 
from coming out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus and the golden calf experience. He sets up two golden two altars, two golden calves. He appoints a priesthood from anybody that any tribe that wanted to be a priest instead of the Levites. It set them. Yeah. Uh, so a false priesthood, false gods, false altars. That's what Jeroboam is doing in the northern kingdom. Utterly foolish and rebellious and sinful. So let's pick up reading. Uh, at that time, Abijah, son of Jeroboam, became ill, and Jeroboam said to his wife, Go disguise yourself so that you won't be recognized as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh. Ahijah, the prophet, is there, the one who told me I would be king over this people. Take ten loaves of bread with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did what he said and went to Ahijah's house in Shiloh. Now Ahijah could not see. His sight was gone because of his age. But the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife is coming to ask you about her son, for he is ill. And you are to give her such and such an answer. When she arrives, she will pretend to be someone else. So when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why this pretense? I've been sent to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, but you have not been like my servant David who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal, you have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. Because of this, I'm going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slaver free. I will burn out the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until, all, until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city. And the birds will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. As for you, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried. Because he's the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. Even now, this is beginning to happen. And the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their ancestors and scatter them beyond the Euphrates River because they aroused the Lord's anger by making Asherah poles. And he will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. Then Jeroboam's wife got up and left and went to Tirzah, 
As soon as she uh, stepped over the threshold of the house, the boy died. They buried him and all Israel mourned for him as the Lord had said through his servant, the prophet Ahijah. The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars and how he ruled, are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. He reigned for 22 years and then rested with his ancestors. And Nadab, his son, succeeded him as king. We're looking tonight, subject matter, sin's legacy. You know, I read a testimony some time ago of a, of a man who uh, moved to California to take up new responsibilities with his company. His company happened to be, at the time, one of the strongest in the nation. It was a leader in that particular industry. But two years after he moved there, the company no longer existed. Changing market conditions had had an effect, of course, but it was a lot deeper than that. He said there was corruption, there was mismanagement, and there was rampant decay from within. The decay wasn't instantaneous, but it was terminal. It was a slow death for the company. Folks, the same can be said for churches, for nations, for families. Death may be slow, but it is certain. You know, I think in the book of Revelation, in chapter 2 and 3, when Jesus addressed churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor, and how he threatened them that if they did not take care of what was wrong in the congregation, he would remove their candlestick. The candlestick was the church. Remember what he said of Ephesus? You've fallen out of love with me. You're still working hard for me. You just don't love me anymore. You've left your first love. You've lost your first love. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you don't, I will come and remove your candlestick. Well, we know in church history that the church at Ephesus ceased to exist. So apparently, they didn't repent. And that slow fade continued until they were a church no more. And who can forget the Roman Empire? You know, we talk about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and probably what we're talking about mainly in essence is the western half of the Roman Empire because the eastern half continued to exist for another thousand years. But the western half largely because of moral and spiritual decay over about 250 years declined until the Roman Empire was no more. Again, it was slow. A slow fade, a slow decline, but a decline nonetheless. Now folks, as we come to 1 Kings chapter 14, we see the same type thing beginning to set in. Both Israel and Judah are in a state of decay. The glory days may, may have seemed to them like a distant memory, but in reality, the glory days have just been a few decades. It's not been that long. You see how quickly bad leadership and sin can set in and destroy even a nation. Well, we've been a few decades. And, and already, this nonsense is going on. 
The seeds sown by Solomon and Jeroboam and Rehoboam are producing an ugly fruit. The leaders of both nations seem to be locked into destructive patterns. And nobody seems to be willing to take the necessary action to turn things around. It reminds me of a principle Paul set down in Galatians 6-7 where he says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, this shall he also reap. And that's what's happening here. They're reaping the seeds that they have been sowing. First thing I want you to see tonight, sin cost and is eventually known. Sin cost and is eventually known. At some unspecified time in his reign, Jeroboam's young son, Abijah, becomes ill. Now, the boy's name means, my father is Yahweh. So this indicates, or seems to indicate, that Jeroboam, in naming his son this, at one time, early on, had a heart for Yahweh, had a heart for the true and the living God. And he names his son what he does. But again, Jeroboam's gotten seriously off course. Instead of walking in obedience to God, as we've already talked about, he set up false, al false altars. He set up false images, idols, the golden calves. He appointed a false priesthood. And they began to uh, offer false sacrifices. It's just like God said in the Old Testament, this people draws near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the situation going on. Jeroboam's heart is far from God. God has sent a prophet to Jeroboam back in chapter 13. We covered that last time. And he warned Jeroboam about Jeroboam's sin and what would be the consequences of it. And do you remember what Jeroboam's response to that prophet was? Exactly. He told the people, seize him. He didn't like that prophet prophesying something bad about him. So he gave the command for the prophet to be seized. But instead, do you remember what happened? What happened to Jeroboam? His hand withered. Exactly. It was struck with paralysis. And he cried out for the prophet to intercede for him that he might be healed. And that's exactly what happened. Now, you would think that would have been a lesson learned for him, right? But look at the end of chapter 13. Pick up reading with me in verse 33. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. I mean, it's like some people never learn. You know, it's a dangerous thing to despise God's discipline, isn't it? You know, in the book of 1 John, 1 John even talks about a sin leading unto death. He says there's sin that doesn't lead unto death, but there is sin 
that leads unto death. And I can't help but think about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Sin that led unto death. You know, the Scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jeroboam has now fallen into the hands of the living God, and it's not going to be a good outcome for him. Now, was Jeroboam ever really a true believer? I, I have my doubts, but I'm glad God's the one to determine that, you know? But one thing we do see here is the fact that there is a terrible paycheck for sin. The illness of his son concerns him greatly for the moment at least. And for the moment, God's gotten his attention again. And he wants to find out what the outcome to his son's illness is, is going to be. And he remembers the prophet who told him that he would be king one day. You remember that episode? Turn back to chapter 11 with me. Chapter 11 and verse 29. Chapter 11, verse 29. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. One, because Judah was the predominant tribe. Uh, Benjamin was the other. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemos, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand, I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, and who obeyed my commands and decrees. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands, and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son, so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you, and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. So, you know, his son is now sick, and he wants to know what the outcome of the illness is going to be. He remembers this guy who prophesied over him he was going to be king. He's king now. He wants a word from the Lord about his son. And so again, he remembers this prophet, and, and uh, he wants to turn to the prophet. But I want you to notice who he sends. He doesn't go himself. He sends his wife. You know, that, kind of, that right there tells me that Jeroboam knows in his heart 
he shouldn't go. He knows he's not right with God. Uh, he doesn't even want his wife going as herself. He wants her disguising herself, right? What should that have told him about his heart condition? That he needed to change. He's gotten off course. It should have been obvious. You know, why is it that oftentimes that people living in disobedience to God, they, they want to know what God would have them to do, and yet they don't want to turn from their sin. They're not ready to turn from their sin. They, they believe God can direct them. They just don't want to change and repent and do what's necessary. You know, it says something of, of the deception of Satan, doesn't it? I remember a number of years ago, a, a younger woman in the congregation, not in the congregation anymore, sat in my office telling me what all she was involved in. I told her as bluntly as I've ever told anybody it was going to destroy her marriage, her relationship with her kids, her family. But And she knew that. She knew that. She acknowledged it. But she was going to do her sin anyway. And all of the above happened to her. Things fell apart. You see, folks, what we read in the Bible in 2022 is the, 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 the Bible is just as contemporary for 2022 as it was to these folks back then. You know? Because human nature hasn't changed. Mankind still deals with the same old problems from the same old sin. And I want you to notice that Jeroboam also wants his wife, to take the man of God a present, which was customary at the time out of the respect for the prophet's office. But the gift he wants her taken is even a disguise because he doesn't send her with a gift fitting of a king's wife being presented, but rather the gifts of a common woman to somebody. So, I mean, whether it's her and pretending to be somebody else and her gifts she's presenting, he's, he's wanting her to be as completely disguised as possible from the prophet. Here again, do people actually think that God doesn't see? God's sovereign. You know, God sees what we do in the dark. There's no, there's no secrets with God. In verses 5 to 7, notice that when Jeroboam's wife got to the prophet's house, the, we're told the prophet's old enough. What's happened to it? He's gone blind. But you know, God had exposed the whole thing to him. He calls her out immediately. All of the disguises uh, means... They, they mean absolutely nothing. Again, folks, God knows everything. Jesus said even the very hairs on your head are numbered. You can't pull one over on the God of the universe. I mean, how foolish that they thought, you know, if he's a true prophet of God, which he was, and which they believed he was, they want to go there and inquire a word from the Lord from him, and they think somehow or another he's not going to know who's really making the request. Again, it just, it, it shows how their sin has just blinded them so much 
to God. Well, secondly, I want you to see sin's consequences and eventual judgment beginning there in verse 8. The prophet reveals God's message to Jeroboam's wife that God had placed Jeroboam where he was for a purpose. And Jeroboam had been a terrible steward. The prophet tells her that instead of Jeroboam leading the people in God's ways and being a king with a heart for God the way David had a heart for God, Jeroboam has a heart of sin and idolatry. And that's how Jeroboam has led the people to be. So what's God finally uh, say through the prophet to Jeroboam's wife? God says, I'm angry. I'm angry with Jeroboam. Folks, I tell you what, leaders better sit up and take notice of statements like that. You know, everybody likes to say, oh, God, God's love, which He is. God will never judge anybody. And they, they just look at one attribute of God without looking at His holiness. God judges sin. He says, I'm angry at Jeroboam. Uh, again, leaders... Anybody in a position, any position of leadership, and any leadership position in the church where you're supposed to be leading people in the ways of the Lord, the, the word of the Lord, giving instruction, and you're not. I mean, think of God saying to somebody, I'm angry at you. That's serious. I mean, Paul told the Corinthians, we're supposed to be stewards of the mysteries of God. And one thing God expects of stewards is what? That we be found faithful. Jeroboam's not faithful. God says, I'm angry at him. And God tells the wife that every male of Jeroboam's house is now going to be cut off. Anybody who dies in the city is going to be eaten by dogs, and anybody who dies in the open field is going to be eaten by birds. Now, folks, I want you to remember for a Jew to not get a decent burial was a very serious thing. It was a terrible thing because Jews understood we're made in the image of God. It's not just the soul that matters. Sure, our soul's going to live somewhere for all of eternity, but God's even going to raise up glorified bodies for the redeemed of the Lord one day. The body matters in biblical theology. And, and that's why God's people were to respect even the flesh. They weren't, to, they weren't to pierce it. They weren't to tattoo it. They weren't to cut it. They weren't to join it to prostitutes because it was the body that God gave you and you're created in the image of God, the imago dei. And so to be told that your body was just going to be thrown out in the field and eaten by dogs or plucked at by birds. That was a terrible thing. You know, it's like I said Sunday. You can tell a lot about a people and a culture and their respect for the dead, how they treat the dead. You know? Like I said Sunday, we don't say, son, go put grandma out at the curb. Tomorrow's trash day. You know? <clears throat> The dead deserve a decent, God-honoring funeral and burial. Because even if they're unbelievers, here was a life that God had created. Well, the prophet continues in verses 12 and following to tell Mrs. Jeroboam 
that her son is indeed going to die as soon as she steps foot back home. Uh, but he'll be the exception. He'll get a decent burial. The Lord took some degree of delight in him. Now I want you to imagine that, what's being said here. Jeroboam's sin has cost the life, or will cost the life of his son, whom God valued. God wasn't angry with the son. He was angry at Jeroboam, but the son was going to die. There's a balance and a tension that we need to see in the Scripture. As God said through the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 18, it is the soul that sins that shall die. God holds the guilty party responsible. But the Scripture also says even those around the guilty party may have to pay the consequences. God may judge to the third and fourth generation. God was going to spare this son all the pain of what would happen to Jeroboam's family, but the son was also going to die. Folks, don't think that your sin is always going to be just a private matter. Your sin affects people around you. And your sin can have devastating consequences on your family. Well, in verses 14 and following, the prophet looks ahead as he's, again, still speaking to Mrs. Jeroboam. He tells of the time that Nadab, Jeroboam's son, will replace Jeroboam, but he will only reign for two years, and then he'll be assassinated by a guy named Basha, a man from the tribe of Issachar, Abisha not only killed Nadab, but he would execute the entire family of Jeroboam in fulfillment of exactly what the prophet has indicated in this chapter that we're studying tonight. Because again, what does a true prophet speak? The word of the Lord. It's going to happen exactly as this prophet is telling Jeroboam's wife. It's going to happen. But then this prophet looks even further into the future. Again, he's able to do that. He's a prophet of the Lord. God sees tomorrow. God sees the future. We don't. And so God has this prophet tell Mrs. Jeroboam what's even going to happen to the northern kingdom in years and years to come. The Assyrians are going to come in, invade the ten northern tribes, carry them off, and then uh, Tiglath-Pileser uh, third, he's going to bring people in to intermarry with the, the remnants of the northern kingdom, and they're going to become half-breeds that existed down to the day of Jesus. And the Jews despised them. The true Jews despised them. So again, he's prophesying here not just the destruction of Jeroboam's household, but he's looking forward to how God is going to deal with everybody in the ten tribes. And he's going to do that because of the sin of the people. Wait a minute. I thought it was the sin of Jeroboam. Well, it was. But the people apparently went right along with it. These altars with the golden calves set up, they tolerated all that. And that's where they went to 
make sacrifices and so forth. So God's going to judge them too because they've been complicit in the sins of Jeroboam. You know, it's like Charles Spurgeon said one time, God never allows his people to sin successfully. Right? Sin's got devastating consequences. It's going to have consequences immediately for Jeroboam. As soon as Mrs. Jeroboam gets back home, their son's got to die. Then all the males in Jeroboam's line are going to be killed. Jeroboam's going to be killed. Then all the people of the ten tribes are going to be likewise destroyed. Question. Obvious question. Does God take sin seriously? You better believe it. He takes sin seriously. Sometimes we laugh about it or joke about it or you know, think lightly of sin. God takes sin seriously. And this is a case in point that demonstrates that. One gentleman writes, I was late and although I wouldn't admit it, I was lost. I increased my speed, but none of the landmarks I had expected were in view. But I pressed on, convinced that if I just kept going, I'd finally find myself where I wanted to be. Finally, reason plus the persistent voice of my wife caused me to turn around. <laughs> now, as that man learned, going faster in the wrong direction does not help you to arrive sooner at the right spot. <laughs> the only thing to do is to do what? Turn around. And that was the one thing Jeroboam and the people of his family and the people of the northern kingdom were not willing to do. They weren't willing to turn around to repent. What about you tonight? Let's think about some lessons. We cannot deceive God. God knows all about us, who we are, and what we have done. Second lesson, sinful choices have significant consequences. Sinful choices have significant consequences, not only for us, but also for those who follow us. Third lesson. God will not tolerate anything but exclusive loyalty to Him. He's a jealous God, as the Bible teaches. He knows that other things we turn to are nothing but broken cisterns that can hold no water. And then finally... If sin is not repented of, God's judgment and discipline can fall swiftly and severely. Okay, before we wrap it up, do y'all does anybody have any thoughts on what we've read thus far tonight or covered thus far?
Any observations you made that maybe I passed over? Yeah. Yeah. You're saying if you didn't hear, wonder what's going through Mrs. Jeroboam's mind as she crossed over towards home and got back across the threshold and her son dies. Wonder what she thought because of a mother's bond with her child. Richard? America was founded on Judea, Judea uh, Christian principles, mm -hmm. and so over the years, God blessed and blessed and blessed this country. And several administrations back, our president said, uh, with great glee and joyfulness, I must say, that uh, he said, America is no longer a Christian nation because we have this religion, that religion, this religion. <coughs> And I think since then, uh, God's kind of like judging in some ways different things happening in America. Oh, yeah. Well, again, as I've mentioned before, when you read the second half of Romans chapter 1, what happens when people suppress the truth of God? The, the things that God says there, the three, th three times He says, I gave them over I gave them over. I gave them over. And he describes what all that looks like. What a people begins to do. And that's a sign that that people, they are already under the judgment of God. The judgment of God isn't just eschatological future. It's present as well. And so, I mean, I know sometimes people don't want to hear it. The things that we are seeing on the streets of America today show us very clearly America is already under the judgment of God. It's already happening. And, you know, we keep going... As Paul says there in Romans 1 again, it's like God greases the sliding board in the direction that you're determined to go. <clears throat> Tragic. 